0: Welcome to The Big Deal, where we'll unlock the details and drama behind the business of sport in Australia and around the world. Join me, Warren Tredray, along with Andrew Montessi, Dion Heyman and our expert guests as we take you into the boardroom for behind-the-scenes access and analysis of contracts, negotiations, endorsements and more. Don't forget to sign up at www.thebigdeal.au for a weekly wrap of the latest deals, breaking news and many more exclusive opportunities.
1: I'm Dion Heyman and it's a big welcome to AFL legend Warren Treadray.
0: Well, Don't worry about me Dion because have got a bigger AFL legend on the hook. Don't worry about that.
1: Well I didn't want to say that but you, you're dead right there uh, Tredge. Uh, we're lucky enough to talk to a guy who it seems has just got the Midas touch wherever he goes. As a player Paul Roos played 356 games, 269 for Fitzroy and 87 for Sydney from 82 to 1998 as well as 14 for Victoria. He was Fitzroy captain for 6 years, best and fairest 5 times if you don't mind, 7-time all Australian, twice all Australian captain, he captain Victoria. He was he's in the all he's in the Australian Football Hall of Fame and then he thought he'd have a crack at coaching and he did okay at that as well. Ended the Swans 72-year premiership drought in 2005 as well as coaching Melbourne for 3 years from 2014 to 16 with a bloke by the name of Simon Goodwin as his understudy. He's also spent time in the US, where he's credited with uh, having a little bit of an influence over how the uh, Australian Football League over there is set up.
0: Yeah, if that's not enough, uh, he's also named the Australian Father of the Year in 2008 for his ability to balance work-life balance with family. Also, he's the founder and director of Performance by Design, which prides itself on transforming sports and business cultures by using a tailored system structured to address pain points and personalities. It's quite a CV, and I feel quite tired after all of that. Ruzi, welcome. Hey, boys. How are you doing? G'day, traders. How's it going? Good. Yeah, we're going very well now. Can you tell us a little bit more about this business that you've got going on? Yeah, so about sort of five years
2: ago, we came together. There's four sort of founders, and we're all loosely connected in one way, shape or form. Um, and really, we work we work a little bit in sport now, but mainly in business. And but a lot of the learnings come from sport. Um, we've transitioned that into business. So really, it's about sort of setting your culture, setting really clear what we call a culture code, um, getting to know each other more. Through we do a lot of Profiling, so um, Insights Discovery is the tool that we use, do a lot of profiling, building really strong relationships with each other at at work. And then probably something that that footy clubs, as you know, traders do really well, is just honest feedback. So teaching a system of how we give honest feedback. And a lot of it is around positive feedback. I think too often leaders think, yeah, it's just about what people do wrong. So we really encourage at least a four to one ratio of positive to negative feedback. Um, I know I wish I had that uh, with one of my coaches or a couple of my coaches early in my career, the, the four-to-one, but it was was normally uh, not that ratio, Treaders. So, um, but, yeah, so that's pretty much what we do. And, and we try and really our mission is to take the chance out of culture and to try and systemise culture so you can actually, you know, get the culture you want, not just leave it to chance. Now, fundamentally... You know, a lot of companies do that, and if you get enough good people in there, your culture is going to, you know, be a six, seven out of ten. Um, but as we know, as we get people that probably don't have the same values, if we haven't systemized it and we're not really clear on what we want, then our culture starts to erode, you know, over time.
0: What type of businesses? Uh, I've also looked on your website. You've got sporting clubs you've worked with too, but also some big businesses. And do you think this is an evolving space? Yeah, absolutely. It's probably not
2: business, like. We, we, we work with big companies, smaller companies. It's more when people ask us what it works with, it's more the leader. Like if the leader's really interested in, in setting a real clear foundation for his workforce and his business, et cetera, et cetera, it works really, really well. I think traders, particularly out of the last couple of years, out of the pandemic, what's happened is a lot of people have lost connection. And a lot of companies that perhaps haven't done a lot of work on their culture and really don't know what their values and their behaviours are, haven't really built strong relationships, have really struggled. So is it an evolving space? Absolutely. Because I think leaders are now realising that culture probably is more important now than strategy. And we're certainly seeing a lot of that. We're seeing a lot of leaders reaching out. A lot of leaders being really inquisitive about what we do and implementing some of those strategies.
1: So, Ruzi, you work with businesses as well as sporting organisations. Like, what are the techniques that differ when you when you work between the two of them?
2: Probably the regularity. I think uh, the football clubs just spend way more time on it. You know, like just, you know, if we're working with a footy club or a sporting organisation, we're there pr- pretty much every week. Yeah, you know, and that's where that accountability model comes from, doing a review with the players. In the corporate world... Yeah, we try and set up what we call our culture code, we try and do our first you know, workshops where we're bringing people together, we're teaching them what makes them tick, understanding themselves, understanding their team, putting in a system of, of having honest conversations. Yeah, I love to get back once a month, but sometimes it's once every three months and we work on a, a three-month cycle. And then part of our initial workshop is really the audit. Yeah, what do they do well, what what do they need more improvement on, and we work really Know, strongly with the, the HR people and culture person the business owner the CEO or whoever it might be to really work through their problems and put a, a consistent program in place
0: now you would have seen many sporting um, teams over the years struggle for success because it's perceived as a broken culture in your opinion how quick can this be turned around
2: well footy clubs is a little bit harder because you you, you as you know traders you, you're set with your list from day one you know so you can sort of you can get your your strategies in place, and you're really relying heavily on your leaders. If your leaders are really good role models and jump on board really, really quickly, then it can turn around pretty quickly. But if you've got leaders that haven't been taught either the proper way to play or the, the technical skills around how we want to act around the footy club, that's really what culture is. It can take a little bit longer. So it's really it really dependent a lot on the leadership group. If you've got a really strong leadership group, then it takes, you know, it can turn around Quickly, if it's not, then you've got to teach the leaders and basically got to say to the leaders, you know, you are the role models. You can't be doing the wrong thing off the field and you certainly can't be doing the wrong thing on the field. And as you know, know, if if I'm in in a meeting on a Monday and the captain of the footy club's always in the wrong position at stoppages or kicking the ball to the wrong area or not tackling or whatever, it takes a lot longer. But if our leadership group does those things well, really, then it's easy for the young players to come in, look around, see what's expected, see what the leaders do, and then we can turn around rel- relatively
1: quickly. It strikes me, Rosie, that in the AFL, you were associated with three clubs that uh, perhaps traditionally didn't have a lot of success over the last uh, 50 years or so in Fitzroy, Sydney and Melbourne. Is that why you took such an interest in in and placed such a high price on, on leadership? I think so. I sort of thought about that a lot, Dion. It's
2: it's interesting, often we pick coaches from really successful teams and I actually think the reason I was able to implement what I did at Sydney and then you know, we won the premiership there, but then Melbourne, is because I'd played with a lot of teams that hadn't done that well, but I'd also played with some successful teams. People forget how good Fitzroy were in the early 80s, so when I first arrived... I could see what the behaviours were. I was really fortunate to walk into a group, Gary Wilson, Bernie Quinn, Laurie Serafini, Mickey Conlon. Really good behaviours on the field, but not only on the field, off the field. So I saw what it looked like at its best. Even though we didn't win a premiership at Fitzroy, we played in the finals in, I think, 80, 81, 82, 84, 86. We just didn't quite get there. Um, But I saw what role model leaders did really well and I was really fortunate with that. I then saw how a club could fall away significantly on the back of not much money, losing really talented players to opposition. Probably not necessarily the culture of the team, but more the culture of the the organisation and more the fact that we didn't have money. And I think that was a real advantage. And and one thing I thought to myself when I started coaching the Sydney Swans is, how do we not leave culture to chance? How can we systemise this? How do I make sure we do pick role model leaders? And Trent, as you would probably know, that most of the time, captains previous to Sydney were picked the best player the longest serving player, and and to be fair, most of the time they had pretty good behaviours, but we transformed what was acceptable. Now yeah, Stewie Maxfield as the, as the captain, and I've said this to Stewie, and he would admit this, he wouldn't have been in our top 10 or 12 players, but his behaviours were exemplary. So when we rolled the dice at Coffs Harbour and we picked our leadership group on the back of the behaviours, it really was rolling the dice. Would this work or wouldn't, would it not work? And because Stewie was such a good role model leader... And that leadership group was so good at holding everyone accountable. Yeah, we were able to turn it around really quickly. And, and within three years, yeah, we, we won the premiership. And in, even in 2003, yeah, we've made the preliminary final. But but it wouldn't have happened had we not had really strong leaders. And shuey Maxfield is arguably the, one of the most important people at, in Sydney's history over the last 30 years because of what he did to lead that cultural transformation.
0: Now, obviously, you've seen... Some people who naturally take to leadership, Stewie Max, who are clearly one of them. Um, then there are others who struggle with it, who are you know, probably in, in before your time at Melbourne. Um, it looked like they put two young kids in who weren't quite ready. What are the key things you come back to when you're talking about appointing a leader or, or, or talking leadership? Because it doesn't, it's not easy for everyone.
2: I think it's a really good point. And, and we can touch on a specific example of Melbourne. I remember when Jack Grimes and Jack Trengrove were made captains, I sort of looked from afar and thought, it's really difficult to become a captain unless you've honed your craft well enough and you know what leadership is and you can roll. And to be fair, that two of the most outstanding individuals I've ever coached. Like Jack Grimes, Jack Grimes and Jack Trengrove, I don't know how much you've had to do with Trenners, is now back in Adelaide, but outstanding individuals. But at that time, they were appointed captains We talk about role model leaders. They really hadn't had their own games in shape. And I honestly believe one of the the biggest transformations and the reason Melbourne went down is because um, James McDonald got the flick, Brad Green, I think it was, Cam Bruce, Brad Miller. So all those senior role model players were sort of pushed out really quickly. And I think that... So for me, leadership is understanding what you're really good at and understanding that, first and foremost... I've got to stand in the right spot at the stoppage. You know, I've got to make my tackles. I've got to do the things that are expected of me from the coach and I've got to turn up the training on time. I've got to do it. So it's the behaviours you want everyone else to see, all right? So for Jack and Jack, they probably didn't really know what it looked like at that early stage of their career. And I think first and foremost, it's understanding exactly what you want to transform your footy club into, what the behaviours and the actions that you want to see everyone do, and those guys just driving it over and
1: over and over and over again something else you implemented at Sydney Rosey which they still do today is is using multiple captains which uh, not a lot of other clubs uh, do and I know uh, Sydney's been using three and uh, it's quite extraordinary. What uh, what inspired you to go down that path? And you know, are there any uh, applications that you think could be could extend to the, the business world? I guess.
2: Yeah, I think it came back to when we voted for the leadership group, and I think we realised how significant the leadership group was. And I think the other reason was often, not often, hopefully not often, but if the captain's going through a bad patch, you know, he was always left out on a shelf a little bit, you know, because everyone wants the captain to do the news conference. The captain after the game, the captain talking about the win. And there's a bit of that as well. How do we spread the workload and take the pressure off one player and spread it across a number of players? So even whether you have one, two or three captains, for me, it's the leadership group. The leadership group are the most important thing at a footy club. You know? And then if you can have two and three captains, it certainly means that you know, those things where the captain is the face of the club, and it does happen a lot, they can be spread out. You know, One captain, jump a presentation, the other one talks to the best and fairer, someone else you put up. And I, I felt that was really important during that period of time when we probably didn't... I mean, we had some great players, but we probably just didn't have that one person that could take the load anyway. So there's some certainly some pros and cons, definitely.
0: Now, in terms of the coaching, um, you went to the US with your playing days ended and did a lot of work with the United States, Australian Footy League. What did you learn from that?
2: Yeah, that was bizarre, actually. It was sort of funny. I was sitting at home... At uh, Tammy's family's place, we we stayed, we list, lived with Tammy's family for 10 months. I left at the end of 98, went to America, got a phone call from Paul O'Keefe, the president of United States Australian Football League. First of all, I didn't even know it existed. And second, he said, oh, Ruzi, can you... Come and do some work. I said, look, yeah, I've got plenty of time. So the AFL sent over some money to pay me to, to fly around. So we, I did some clinics all around America, and it was unbelievable. I remember the New York Magpies played against the Philadelphia, can't remember what their second name was. They, they hired four <laughs> baseball fields right outside of Manhattan. I remember I coached both teams and umpired. So if you want to have a really good record as a coach, that's a really good way to maintain a hundred percent record. Coach both teams and umpire the game. And but I remember as as before standing in the middle of the ground waiting for everyone to turn up and this bloody convertible came through with the the four post sticking out of the roof, plastic posts. After the game, there was the Esky and the barbecue and the, the Victorian bidder. And it could have been anywhere in country Victoria, really. It was just... a. It's, and I'm standing there looking back at Manhattan going, this is unbelievable. And then my first coaching gig was coaching the United States Revolution against Canada in Chicago, which was incredible. But one of the the, the, the things I most remember is our captain Darren Leon, who was an American guy. So you, you had to be a green card holder for a certain amount of time, or obviously an American citizen. Rich Man, who's Peter Man's brother, he played. He was a very good player. But Darren Leon was the captain, and he sent me a um, a note after the game. Said it was one of the most proudest moments of his life representing the United States. And he said I, he had tears in his eyes when they played the national anthem. And it was really quite amazing to to think about how serious that these guys were and they legitimately were representing the United States of America against Canada so it was a a really good experience to yeah but that was my first sort of coaching
0: you know foray into coaching now do you think you know we've seen the exhibition games going back probably a couple of decades um where you know the VFL teams would go and travel and play in uh, overseas um do you think it would ever take off in America or is it just a pie in the sky
2: I think We've seen what I don't think in terms of playing, but I think I went over in 1999 and what I realised is there's so many really smart Aussies working over here in business, going to school, colleges, universities. So they actually had a really good infrastructure, the United States Australian Football League. Um, and I really believe if the AFL had got behind it in '99 we would have an American, at least one American at every single footy club and probably more. I mean, we've seen the impact of Mason Cox. We saw the impact of Mike Pike. Now, Mike was a Canadian, but he he did it just through sending a tape. The talent level in America, anyone that's been to America, we did an exercise at the Sydney Swans. Um, We picked four major colleges in America, and 1% of college athletes go and play in the pros. So 99% of them, are looking for something to do afterwards. So if had the AFL got behind it in some way, shape or form, I, I honestly believe we would see at least one great athlete at every team and probably two or three, and the game itself um, would have... Yeah, you know, significantly improved through the numbers you know, coming through because, we, as I said, we've seen the impact that Masons had on, on games and Pikey was yeah you know, 2012 Premiership player with the Sydney Swans. In terms of playing, I mean the the American games are so big over here as you know, like yeah you know, NFL, basketball, you know. So as a as a playing sport and and developing the league, yeah, it wouldn't be that high profile, but certainly you know, what the USA have. AFL have done has been fantastic. They've got their national championships next week um, and they'll have a lot of teams, a lot of players um, and a lot of Americans playing the sport as well.
1: Well, you came back to Sydney where you, uh, you were an assistant under Rodney Eade uh, before taking the job midway through the 2002 season. Was uh, coaching something you always wanted to do, particularly after getting that uh, taste with uh, you know the United States and all?
2: It's actually funny because I was working... Um, I came back in 99, I was working on the Olympics in 2000 for C7, which was Channel 7's pay TV network, and I was on the 11pm to 6am shift, I still speak to the three people that listened to me through that, that, that period, and then I got an opportunity to become an assistant coach, and the reason I tell the story is because the answer was really no, I thought at that stage, I'll, I'll become an assistant at the end of 2000, see what it's like, see if I enjoy it. And then suddenly I was, remember sitting in my office on a Monday and we just got beaten by Geelong. And I got a phone call, I think the first phone call was from Steve Quartermain and Quarters rang and said, oh, Ruzi, just wanted to comment about Rodney E you know, leaving the Swans. I'm like, hang on, Rockets' office is literally right next to mine. I said, Quarters, I've no idea what you're talking about. Put the phone down, 20 minutes later, Johnny Blakey rings me. I think at the time he's working for Brisbane Lions. He said, oh, Rusie, what's going to happen now that Rockets... Yeah, you know, left. I've gone, Johnny. I have no idea what you're talking about. So I put the phone down. I walked into Rocket's office. I said, "Mate, I've had two phone calls. From one from Johnny Blakey, one from Quarters." I said, "Are you? What's happened?" He goes, "Yeah, no, they're right. I'm stepping." That was the first that we that I'd heard of it. Now, obviously, we knew that he was under pressure and all that sort of stuff. So the point being, it really wasn't till he had the press conference. We then had a meeting the next day with Dennis Carroll was chairman of selectors. Miles Baron hay was, I think, the CEO at the time. Steve Lawson was the footy manager. And really, we just sat around. It was John Longmire, uh, Steve Malaxos, myself, I think it was, Dennis. And we'd really discussed then what we were going to do. And we'd actually talked about maybe rotating it. And then later on that week, we had a bye week coming up. And later on that week, I got asked if I would do the job. So it really wasn't until that point. Because up until then, I was really just assessing, you know, whether I was good at it how I enjoyed it, and I didn't think there was any urgency to actually make the decision. So it wasn't until that stage that I had to go home and speak to Tammy and say, look, I've been offered the job and I asked for a longer-term contract but wasn't given one. Yeah, you know, it was risk and reward at the time, really, to say yes. I said, yes, I'd do it. And then over that 10-week period, I grew to really enjoy it, grew a really strong connection with the players who I'd played with
0: as well, and then, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, was being a full-time coach what you expected, or was it a lot harder? In terms of playing Treaders... Uh, and I, I,
2: I say this to you, Ryan, it, when you play, you can have some success in a loss. And and I, and I don't mean the ultimate success, you know, you and I know that. We, you know, you lose, you're still incredibly disappointed. But you can have some wins as a, as a player. You know, you can, you can play a, a good game and, you know, you can still get something out of it. What I found as a coach, and, and the other thing about playing is no matter... If it's the most selfless player, I don't know who the most selfless player you played with, but, you know, Kirky or whatever it was. Fundamentally, they've still got to look after themselves first. So even the most selfless player has to look after themselves. You know, train hard, eat well, those prepare well. As a coach, it's all about the team. Completely about the team, and that's that's the biggest difference. You know, when you lose, and you know, went to Melbourne, we lost a lot of games. There's not a lot of joy in it. You can still find a little bit of joy in young player playing well and all those sorts of things. But that's the biggest difference. As a coach, it's completely about the team. It has nothing to do with you as an individual. You know, it's all about what can I give to the team. That's the assistant coaches, the fitness, the medical staff. And probably the other thing is you have to manage so many people. Probably the thing that coaches are least prepared to do is that management of people. Yeah, I, I was ill-prepared, but I had Andrew Island next to me, who was the ex-CEO of, of Brisbane Lions, was now my football manager. So it's fantastic to have a mentor like Andrew, but there's a massive jump from being an assistant coach to a senior coach. It's it's huge, and it's got bigger and bigger as it's gone through.
0: Do people understand how hard or how high pressure is the AFL coaching gig? And and what are the some of the lesser-known challenges that you face as a senior coach because when it all turns, everyone points at one person.
2: It's probably a couple treaders. I think the probably the most frustrating thing, not the the most, but the conduit between the coach and the members is normally the media. So if the media gets something wrong, it, it's really difficult. It's really challenging for the coach because the media are seen by the fans as the the, the gap. Probably the best thing that I did when I took the Melbourne job was go on AFL 360 with Jared and, and Robbo because I had a chance to talk directly with the members. Now most coaches didn't. There was two. I think it was me and Bomber at the time. So whilst it was hard fronting up every week, particularly in the early days of Melbourne, it gave me a direct route to the members. So I think I think one of the biggest challenges, and probably the media aren't even really aware of this, that you know if they say something off the cuff, that the members listen to that, and that can become really challenging then because the narrative changes so quickly. So you don't really get a chance to build up over time, if you know what I mean. Because as soon as something happens, it changes so dramatically. That's probably one thing and it goes hand in hand with the second thing I'm gonna like if you yeah, if you take over a business that's losing twenty million dollars a year in the public sector, yeah, you're gonna have three, four years to turn around and no one's watching you. Yeah, if you take a take over a bottom club, people expect it to happen overnight. You know, they so you've just got to hold the ground. You've got to be confident in what you do, you've got to be confident in the processes. Like I could never have coached the Melbourne Footy Club had I had not coached Sydney. No chance absolutely no chance. Um, and I think I learned because of what I did at Sydney, you know, I knew I was going to cop some belts around the ears, but I knew what we were going to do was going to eventually bring us to where we got to. And I knew it was going to take us time. So they're probably the, the things that people don't realise. In terms of the pressure, I think you know the pressure is going to be there, but you just hope it's there for the right reasons and not the wrong reasons, if that makes sense.
1: Rosie, you stepped down at the end of 2010, um, but not before implementing a succession plan, which uh, included John Longmire, who's still there today. So you obviously think that's pretty important. Um, How important is that and, and what does a good succession process look like? Because we've seen some that, that don't work. It's funny because when I, I remember when I was a player and I sort of always
2: thought to myself, seven or eight years with the same coach. And that just stuck in m- my head. Now, that was predicated by not Whitaker Premiership, I must admit. So that, that plan was sort of like, if you've got seven or eight years with the same coach, it's probably time for that coach to move on. The other thing I thought in my head is, why when a coach leaves do we always go external to pick coaches? It does, that didn't make sense to me either because if we build up a really strong culture and we build up a system you know, that, that helps our players, help our coaches, why is it that we then go outside that system and bring coaches in. So they were the fundamentals to the succession plan. So when I, I think it was about eight years, seven years, I said to Andrew and Richard, look, I'm going to go at the end of next year. John was being interviewed by a lot of clubs. I didn't make the decision. Obviously, I thought it was the best decision. And then they appointed John Longmont. Now, John and I, as I said, John was in that meeting when Rodney left. So he and I had started the journey. We were at Coffs Harbour when we, we went through the behaviours together and really created the system collectively. And the coach being me wanted to leave. So you asked me, what's the, what's the most important thing? in a succession plan number one that is number one clearly the coach has to want to go because if that doesn't happen it ain't a succession plan let's call it something else yeah it's not a yeah it's it's not a succession plan it's a sacking so yeah that's really important i made the decision i wanted to leave the club then appointed john i stayed for 12 months and then we're what does succession plan look like? I said to John from day one, look, yeah, you, I want you to go on the board meeting. I want you to really develop strong relationships with the leaders that you think are the next leaders of this club that you really want to anoint in your tenure. Um, gave him some different responsibilities throughout the season. Obviously, coached pre-season. So, yeah, it was really seamless when we look back on it. Um, and at the time, it was it was something quite unique. But as we look back on it now, it's a little bit more um, a little bit more standard. Not not completely normal, but a tiny bit.
0: And you had great success um, winning the premiership soon after too. Um, but you, now the Melbourne transition for a man who was adamant he never wanted to coach again—did the bug get you? What happened? Yeah, it was sort of a process. So when I left Sydney, as in the coach, I, I started work
2: with the academy, which I really enjoyed. So I love working with the academy. Um, and then due to circumstances, Andrew was Andrew Island grabbed me and said, "Look, Ruthie, we probably we can't continue really with you yeah, doing what you're doing at the academy," and it really coincided with Peter Jackson ringing me probably half a dozen times over the course of that season. Yeah, then you've got sort of elderly parents that, you know, You, you, you I'm originally from Melbourne, and then Peter kept on ringing me. And, and then one day he rang me. I was doing some, I think, on the couch or I'm doing some Foxtel work, and he rang me and he's just completely exasperated. And he said, Ruzy, you said, mate, where, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I don't know, how are you? I said, "Yeah, hey, I'm good. And this is about the fourth time he'd spoken to me. I'd knocked him back three times and then he said, can I speak to you? I said, yeah, of course you can speak to me. What do you mean can you speak to me? He said, no, can I speak to you? Can I come and see you? I said, yeah, well, I'll tell you, I'm at the you know, Crown Metropole. He goes, yeah, no, I'm in the foyer. I said, oh, okay, no worries, come, come up. So I, said to, I then said to him, I said, look, mate, i tell you what, let me meet with the leadership group. I want to know a little bit more around... You know how 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 they see their role in what's happened and where the club is, and he, he was brutally honest, Peter, and I love that about him. Like he wasn't sugarcoating <laughs> anything, in terms of where the club was. There was no pie in the sky. There was no you know false you know narrative. And I also knew Dave Misson, who was the fitness guy. He was my fitness guy with at Sydney Swan. So I spoke. I rang Misso. We had a meeting with the leadership group, and I, and probably what turned me treaders was more the honesty of the leadership group, and and the fact that they just. We mentioned Jack Tremgo, Jack Grimes, really good people. And I thought, and I don't want to go into why, and I thought they'd been really let down by the footy club. And I got a number of text messages when I left that meeting by players that had been in that meeting. And, and then it was actually my son said to me, Dad, you've you've got to do it. You know, you, you have to do it. You know, you, and I think, and it was, I took that as a real compliment from him because he had seen what we'd done. At, he was old enough to sort of know what we'd done at Sydney and the relationship we'd built and, and I was really sort of energised by that stage and, and the challenge. It was a huge challenge and it was a different challenge. It was less about coaching and, and, I'm, and I said before, I, I couldn't have done it had I not done the Sydney job. It was more around management. It was more around culture, management, systems and processes and I, and I thought, okay, I, I know what I can do for three years. I haven't got the energy to do it any longer. Um, and we'll do it on this basis, the succession plan. If I can bring my own staff in, which I did with Benny Matthews, Daniel McPherson, Brett Allison and Georgie Stone, um, that was really important as well. I needed people around me I really trusted. I already knew Miso was there, which was fantastic. Jade Rawlings I had a lot to do with. He was there as well. So there was a lot of circumstances that happened to fall in place. I love Glenn Bartlett. He was the new chairman. And Peter Jackson was super honest, and I got on really well with him. Todd Viney was there. I had a bit to do with Todd. Josh Marnie was a young football manager. I really enjoyed. So really the, all the pieces of the puzzle sort of fell in place, but it took a while to go through the process to be honest.
1: So you go to Melbourne uh, with a succession plan that, uh, I mean, unusually, not too many people start a job basically with an exit strategy from the start and uh, it's one that includes Simon Goodwin as part of that uh, succession plan. So what was it about him?
2: I mean, a lot, but probably the fact that Adelaide had also implemented the similar systems that we had and he was very big on standards and relationships and, and how important and I always had a lot of respect for Craigie. It's funny we I don't know Traders what your bogey team was, but we always had a bogey everyone seemed to have a bogey team and and two oh five two
0: Yeah, it was Sydney in finals. <laughs> I, wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna say that but um <laughs> you knew who it was. Because <laughs> we played
2: West Coast a couple of times and Freo in 05 in the prelims And Adelaide were always in the other prelim. And they seemed to beat us, but we didn't face them in finals. And I always had a lot of time for Craigie and the way his teams were prepared, the systems that he put in place. And I I always got on really well with Neil and and Simon. So I understood the system of of the Crows and and I really respected where Goody had come from and what he'd done and and the journey that he'd been on. And then some of the mistakes that he'd made as well. I mean, he was really honest about those mistakes as well, which was was really authentic. So yeah, those were the sort of things that, that I enjoyed and talking to him and the fact that we had a couple of years that we were going to have together was obviously really important as well I wanted to give continuity to the players as well I didn't want to come in for three years and then just leave and no one knew I wanted to give them a really clear roadmap for how we were going to map these things out um and that and Goody happened to be part of that plan as it turned
0: out now something that's pretty rare in coaching um circles is after 268 games as a coach you walked out on two clubs not actually got sacked what's what's the recipe
2: it's funny, isn't it? I think me and Bomber maybe. Bomber was at one club, but I was sort of thinking how many pages haven't got sacked. I don't know, I think self I think self-awareness and I talk talk about leadership and we talk about this a lot, Treaders at Performance by Design, self-awareness is really important. You know, and I think one of my strengths is I've always been pretty self aware of what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. And you know, I think the timing was just right at Sydney, you know, and it proved to be exactly that. You know, that John Longmire came in, we had a really good draft in two thousand ten to two thousand nine and really transformed the team. And then John took over, I think, at the end of 2010, uh, and won a premiership in 2012. You know, so I think the timing was right. I openly said to Glenn and Peter, I haven't got the energy to coach in the long term. I think this can work. You know, I think if we do it properly, um, and even they were a little bit sceptical. You know, what happens if you, you know, you make the eight or get near the eight after three years? I said, mate, boys, I'm telling you, this is what we're doing. So I think just that self-awareness and. An understanding of where I was at in my life and my career and has allowed me to sort of walk away on two occasions and and look back really fondly on my time and also the time after that I left which is probably more important.
0: Um, the players, there's a lot of support around with mental health with the Players Association. Do the coaches have enough support around them or because it just it feels like they're just thrown to the wolves? Yes and no. I, I think the, the
2: ones that are against self-aware and, and and I think it's really important within your coaching staff you have a couple of blokes you really trust you know that, that you can really talk to about anything and I was really lucky I had that you know Rossi Lyon was a teammate of mine Johnny Blake he was a teammate of mine you know so they, they they knew me from years and years ago so I think putting people around you that will tell you the way it is but you can also they can support you as well it is ex- extremely important I think looking outside the game is important as well looking for role models outside the game and looking for help outside the game but the game the game itself is probably too unforgiving, you know, and I've touched on the media before, I think we, we've dehumanised the game too much, you know, and, and these guys are fundamentally people. You know, coaches are people, players are people. They're there to do the best job they possibly can. Um, And we probably have dehumanised them in in some way, shape or form. Is the support there? Yeah, it is if you look for it. But can we do a better job as an industry? Yeah, absolutely.
1: So what are your thoughts then, Rosie, on the the career of coaching as such? I mean, we see a, a typical process of a player to an assistant coach to a senior coach. Is there a better way? I mean, are we... Are we missing out on, on having some great minds and leaders in the game because of nepotism, uh, you know, following the, the traditional pathway? I think it's more just how
2: do we upskill the assistant coaches and I think how do we give them skills outside the game? I was really fortunate to work. You know, I worked for majority of the time that I played footy, you know. And I think having skills outside the game is really important. The danger at the moment is all the skills players are learning are within the game. So hopefully at university, which is really important, some of them, you know, maybe working a day a week, I think is really important. But equally, finding ways that we can actually upskill the leadership and management component. And that's the biggest gap. There's no doubt. You know, every assistant coach would know roughly how to play the game, roughly. But then to take it out of here and translate it into performance on the field is incredibly difficult. Because suddenly you've got the microphone, microscope on you with the media. You're managing all the fitness staff. You're managing the medical staff. You're managing the player welfare. You're managing all the players. You're managing the coaches. You're dealing with the board. You're dealing with the sponsors. You're just not equipped. So we need to find a much better way to be able to do that in order for assistant coaches to become successful, definitely.
0: Uh, when you stepped away from Melbourne, you then went into Media Street and worked with uh, the Herald Sun and Foxtel, um did you learn anything from working in the media? And also, too, do you see how the media's relationship with professional sport at times? Is it good, bad, ugly? Do you see the role? And where could you make some improvements if compared coaching or helping the game?
2: Yeah, I think I've always understood the role. Let's be off the bat. When I talk about the media, I respect the media because the media pays so much money. And that money gets transferred to me, to the players, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's no question about that. Probably the one of the things I would say is, the media is about entertainment. It's not, a, not necessarily about facts. And I think that's the most frustrating thing that as a coach that deals in facts and deals in stats and deals in reality, I think the media has gone way too far down the path of make-believe, you know, and I think that's damaging the game. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and when I say that, as I get back to what I said before. The fans want to know about the game. They want to know what's happening. You know, and I think there's no accountability in the media whatsoever. You can literally say anything you want to say. There's no one goes back and goes, yeah, they, we've just sacked this guy because six out of the 15 times he, were incorrect. Imagine if a coach got it wrong as much as the media gets it wrong. Yeah, you, you wouldn't last. But, and again, all this is all in perspective of the fact that the media pays a lot of money and it's entertainment. Now, I'm in America now and, and I'm even grasping that even more. You know, it's, it's saturation in America about the game and a lot of it is just repetitive and, and a lot of it is non-factual. I, th- I would love to see the media go back to facts. What is, what is the facts of the game rather than so much editorial space? But I know it's not going to happen because of the amount of money that's paid... And, and, and again, the role that the media now plays in the game is dramatically different. And I've spoken to Mike Sheen about this. I mean, you know, when I first started, every game was on a Saturday at 2.10. The only thing you would read about the game, best players, stats, who won, who played poorly, and the latter. Facts. Just simply facts. Now, it's so far gone past that. It's all about editorials, opinions. You know, we we're already reading who's going to win the Premiership next year. I mean... Really? Who cares?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, in your time of you year at Sydney when Fitzroy, unfortunately, sank. Um, how sad was that for you? And also, too, the reality is we're also seeing lots of teams around the world struggling financially. And what is the future of trying to keep you know, football team successful?
2: Yeah, well, probably, I'll probably start with the second question. I mean, 1986, we had a meeting on the uh, tennis courts at Wesley College on a Sunday morning uh, on a recovery with about seven rounds to go. And our president at the time said, we will fold, uh, we will relocate, or we will merge with the Melbourne-based club. And we all voted to go collectively together and relocate. And when I look back on it, Threaders, to your question, we should have done that. You know, we, we just limped... For so much longer, and the AFL at that stage, to be fair, weren't really interested in supporting clubs as they are now. So we really should have gone to Brisbane in '86. And in that particular era, I think they Brisbane Lions had recruited both the Jarmans and Marty Leslie. And I think Marty eventually went, but the Jars the Jarmans, didn't go. I would think if if Fitzroy had a relocated, I reckon we would have got the. And, I, and again, I'm, people might laugh at me, but I think we would have won a premiership within two or three years with the team that we had, with the players that would have come in. But in hindsight, we limped through the next 10 years. And when we got to that day, I went to the MCG. They invited all the, the past players to the last home game at the MCG and I was able to go. And I think Fitzroy got beaten by... A hundred and something points. Matty Richardson took about 150 marks and kicked 53 goals. And, you know, it was, it was quite frankly, it was sad. It was really, really sad to be in the room with Bernie Quinlan, Gary Wilson. Yeah, Kevin Murray, I think, was there. The greats of the Fitzroy Footy Club. And this is no disrespect to the players that are on the field. They just were a victim of circumstance. But they were representing the club in front of these greats and, and had no chance to win. And then the next week, I think it was 3-0. Sad, mate. Really sad. Um, but, I'm, but I must say, the way Brisbane have embraced the footy club, I'm really pleased that the way they've done it and embraced the footy club. And you know, when my boys talk about it, I I say, yeah, you know, I'm, I also don't necessarily support Brisbane because you know, I've been involved with Sydney post that and, and, and Melbourne. I was on the ground when Alistair Lynch won the premiership in 201, or two, yeah, 201 you know, and it was amazing to see Lynch here with the Brisbane Lions win it. And I walked back to the hotel I was working for Channel 7 at the time and to see all the smiling Fitzroy faces and all the fans patting me on the back saying, well done, Roosie, well done. I'm like, I just sat in the sidelines. I was a sideline commentator. I didn't do anything. It was pleasing that they felt part of it. Now, some don't. Yeah, and I've, and I've ran into a lot of them. But credit to Brisbane, the way they've at least tried to bring the club back together, mate. But it was, was sad, very sad, to see the demise of a, a really proud club that when I first arrived in 1980. Yeah, it was a really special footy club.
1: Rosie, it's been absolutely magnificent uh, talking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you have, obviously, much more uh, success, I'm sure you will, with uh, your uh, your setup there, Performance by Design. All the best uh, over there uh, in Hawaii. Try not to get uh, too sunburned over there while we're all freezing down here. Thanks for your time, mate. And uh, make sure uh, that you subscribe to thebigdeal.au. And we look forward to uh, your company again next time.
0: Thanks, Rosie. Appreciate it, mate. Thanks, boys. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Before you go, don't forget to join our community by subscribing for free at www.thebigdeal.au and get a weekly email bringing together the hottest sports deals, breaking sports biz news as it happens and much more. Join me at www.thebigdeal.au